0: Welcome to the Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness, and difference. I'm Lucy and I'm Alice. I'm so much more yes. than what you see. And we that's Lola. And this is who I'm, meant to be. I'm just labeled.
1: Hey guys don't forget in this episode I might swear Lucy might cry and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website
0: thanks for joining us today Jessica for this episode of labelled the podcast it's very nice of you to join us no problem whatsoever thank you for having me not at all I wondered if you could perhaps start off um, the episode just by talking about your disability and or health condition please
2: yeah sure so um I have something called Marfan syndrome, which I was diagnosed uh, when I was very little, I believe I was three years old. Marfan syndrome is a disorder of the connective tissue, so it affects quite a lot of different parts of your body, kind of the structure of how your body works and internal organs and things like that. So. Mm. The main sort of things that it affects are your eyes and your heart and vascular system, bones, muscles. It's pretty much everything that can be affected. That's because it sounds,
0: sounds like everything. That's <laughs> yeah. a whole collection you've got ongoing there. Really like it would be
1: easier to say what it doesn't affect. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so
2: with, with me, what I've noticed the most of it is obviously... Uh, being very tall I'm six foot one um, wow. and I have very large feet so they are size 10 shoes mm-hmm. that I wear which is the same as my partner which is a bit embarrassing but, <laughs> know, we'll get past that and then it's also uh, particularly long kind of limbs like my fingers are very long I have a really large uh, arm span so one of the ways that they can diagnose Marfan syndrome is obviously going to a um, genetic uh, appointment and they will basically get you to stand there and hold your arms out stretched out to the sides really wide and they'll measure and if your tips of your middle fingers uh, from one tip to the other is taller than your height then you're pretty certain that you've got something like marfan syndrome
1: okay so sort of stretched from one hand to the other your your arm spans actually taller than yes longer than you are tall yes yeah it's a bit
2: awkward when you're in the appointment and they're getting you to stand there and you're thinking that you look a bit like I don't know Jesus on the cross or something but, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: I can imagine do you remember it if you were only three do you remember that diagnosis that sort of going so, through that process
2: that wasn't actually when I was Three. we went for genetic testing uh in my teenage years i can't remember exactly when it was my mum took me just to get it absolutely confirmed because my gp at the time had always said this is you know what she's got and she's you know best to get checked at the glenfield heart H- hospital and to have yearly scans and they knew everything was in line but i'd never had a real formal um test and this is exactly what she's got and how she got it so we decided to do that quite late actually i'm not sure why it was so late i'll have to ask my mum but um yeah we went along to this appointment and they just they looked at my the length of my fingers my arms as i've already said there's also um a hyper mobility thing yeah. so muscles and fingers you can like do all sorts of weird and wonderful things with your hands and bend your thumb in a strange way and there's all sorts of things that are very known uh, in the Marfan community Mm -hmm.
0: Um, and also easily kind of dislocating
2: joints
0: and things like that so. Do you experience any sort of pain with those dislocations or the fact that you are so bended do you think to yourself that really hurts this morning and then realise sort of something's popped out of a socket somewhere or?
2: um, I did when I was younger definitely Mm. I remember a particular incident where uh, I can't remember how old I was, I must have have been about maybe seven or eight and I leant over my bed to like pull the duvet over and make it and tuck it in really nice and just, you know, make it look good. And I remember because I kind of sprawled over the mattress like with my knee, I remember my knee popping and I couldn't, I couldn't move. So (laughs) I literally was stuck like, crouched on this mattress like didn't know what to do screamed my brother came in and was like oh it's fine Jess I'll just have to um sort your leg off don't worry and he was making it worse. <laughs> so I was crying my eyes out but eventually it somehow just clicked back into place um things like that would happen quite a lot when I was younger I don't know if it's because of how fast my bones were growing or yeah. what but not so much nowadays. I mean I do have uh, kind of weak uh, muscles and ankles and things, so I quite often I'm quite clumsy. I'll quite often mm. stumble and trip. Uh, my ankle will roll on itself quite a lot.
0: Not necessarily pain as much. Um so it's not like a like a constant ache. It's just a kind of not, amazing.
2: For me personally, no. I know Marfan syndrome affects people in completely different ways and there are people that have it a lot worse than i do because i'm parts of like groups and forums and stuff online yeah some yeah so for me i don't really have daily pains and struggles the only thing i do get quite regularly is back pain because i have a mild scoliosis that is also associated with Marfan syndrome so Mm. um yeah that was a lot worse again in my kind of child and teenage years um i remember school at high school probably was the hardest time because i don't know if it was the same um where you guys went to school but in like science class most students were told to sit on those wooden stools yeah um so like that's just the typical that's what you know you sit on um and i remember just it causing agonizing pain having nothing to support my back so because I need quite supportive chairs and lumbar support and things like that. I remember my mum actually having a conversation with all my teachers saying, Jessica needs a special chair. That's basically how she phrased it. So every time I'd have a science lab lesson or anything, they would wheel me in a computer chair that I would then sit on. And all the other kids would be like, oh, why do you get the comfort chair? Oh, my back hurts, Miss, too. Why does Jess get the chair? And yeah. Like, a lot of it was just friendly banter but a lot of bullying as well
0: (laughs) I I have got cerebral palsy and I'm in a manual wheelchair and it was only when I was about 16 17 that the sort of it was tail end of pediatrician years and um he he came regularly to to school to do regular checkups and he, I, I changed my paediatric, What well, my original paediatrician had retired, and we had a new one come in, and he sat me on the edge of this bed in the nurse's office at school, and said, I was out of my wheelchair, and he said, oh, do you know you've got scoliosis? Oh. No, it's the first I've heard of it, oh. and, um, uh, but then, once I knew that that was there, I realised that that's why I can't lie on my back in bed, I can't. You know, I can't lying on the actual lump where the scoliosis is only very slight. So if you see me sat up, you wouldn't notice it. But it's only when I've got my like shirts off and stuff, you kind of notice a slight lump. But it was only then when you realise actually that's why it hurts, isn't it? Because there's a lump there that shouldn't be there. And um, it's amazing, really, that it took them so long to realise that I've got a sort of lump on my back. Well, I was like, when they told me, I was a bit like, "Is there anything else? Would you like yeah. to add to, to the list?" <laughs> I think
1: that could be quite. It's interesting because it can be quite sort of almost cathartic sometimes to get that diagnosis and have mm. that, that label to put on it to go, "Oh, it's because of that, is it?" Yeah, you know. And I think that that's something because I was, I was always like, uh, my mum's always sort of assumed that I've probably got some level of dyslexia because I have the classic uh signs of getting I get the right letters but in the wrong order and sort of those sorts of things but we never bothered to get me tested or anything at school because we sort of figured well I'm getting all the support I'm probably going to get anyway from because of my eyesight it's not any what else are they going to do give me even bigger print or whatever (laughs) but I have often thought you know maybe getting that diagnosis for me might make me feel a little bit just it just almost reassuring to say oh well actually there is a reason behind this and so i don't i don't ever identify myself as dyslexic because i've not had that that diagnosis but it is something that's always sort of been interesting
0: to me i don't know whether it's the same for you jess but sometimes i wake up in the morning and i have a new pain and i'm like is this just a visitor or is this a new thing that I've now got to deal with for the, you know, get on, to get on top of? And if it's a, if sometimes you think, okay, it's, yeah, it's just a visitor because it's easing a bit. Or as soon as I move, it's gone. And then other times you're like, no, this is causing me a bit more of a headache. What else is there now? Really? Do you want to just pack it in? Is that the same sort of thing for you? Do you, have you discovered like new things that you think, oh God, not this again? Like, um,
2: yeah, I mean, with Marfan's obviously affecting so many parts of the body Mm. there is always something new that pops up and I've after some surgeries uh, that I'd had there was quite a lot of uh, fluid retention and that's a whole new thing that I'd never experienced before so I had quite swollen legs for a while Mm. which was very painful and that comes and goes so sometimes it's fine and then other times i have to wear one of those um uh, compression stockings with a fight sock yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which are not fun but they yeah. do the job so you have to kind of grin and bear it yeah yeah and just I, I mean i find when i've been on my feet for a long time walking around um you know before all of covid and stuff from going to town and shopping um, I'd get pains in my uh only one of my shoulders, and I never really understood why uh it wasn't kind of how I had my handbag or anything silly like that. It just there would just be one part of my back that would ache more than the other parts. Mm. I've never actually got that diagnosed or mentioned because it, it happens so irregularly, but that is always the part of me that is like quite a throbbing pain if I've been you know on my feet for a long amount of time
0: it is weird isn't it because sometimes you do think now when is the time to mention this to yeah a professional because does it is it going to make it sound like i'm making this up if i if i go to them and go actually it's not so bad today yeah um, and I, I think when i was referred for neurophysio a few years ago i was having a lot of back at just general aches and i was trying to get on top of it so they sent me for some physio to sort of stretch my limbs and everything. And when when I got there, and they said, right, well, what's the problem? And I was like, well, my back hurts a bit sometimes, and my hand hurts a bit occasionally when I'm. And you do think to yourself, if I'm not careful, they're going to think she she like is this kind of like in her head? Do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of like making that decision of when when do i say something and when do I, you know i mean with the whole physio thing for me it was when i was crying with my gp and he was like what is the matter and i'm like, "Everything hurts." it was like okay we need to go get this sorted out and it but even then because once you get the crying out of your system because it's frustration you're kind of like okay i'll go and see somebody and then you're like is it really bad today is it so you kind of have to over egg the pudding a little bit don't you on that first appointment
1: you know my condition is one of those things that it it deteriorates but in kind of terms of pain and stuff like that it's kind of it's off or it's on. Yes. Do you find sometimes like you're you're managing your pain in terms of not, you know, taking medication to manage your pain but managing your pain in the way that you're displaying it externally so that you know for 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 the benefit of other people, you know, do you do you sometimes play it down? Do you sometimes feel like you've got to play it up for professionals and family members and stuff
0: like that. I certainly play it down to people around me because I don't want to come across as that miserable disabled person who's always complaining. Cause at the end of the day, you know, you can say you're in pain once or twice. And then after a while, it's like a broken record and people go, yeah, all right, we know. Yeah. all mm-hmm. right, we know." Um, so I definitely do play it down to people, like, not necessarily my family, but wider friends. You know you know acquaintances if i go to work i don't necessarily open with the the morning line in our morning meeting up everything's hurt me today it has to be really bad for me to go it's hurting so i i know i certainly play it down i don't know about you Jess. what what happens with you um
2: i think it's really interesting because i think if anything the people you, you should be talking to about how you're feeling that day and the levels of pain or anything is probably your friends. Um, Not necessarily, you know, those acquaintances that you see maybe once a month or a year or something or just know online or whatever, but um, with me I always found that I didn't really talk about it very often because I almost didn't want to acknowledge I was different. So, I mean, I wasn't ashamed. Um, I've always been quite sort of, I don't know, like a optimistic glass half full kind of person rather than half empty. So, I you know, you get dealt the cards you're given and you just go with it. But when it came to my kind of core kind of close group of friends, I mm. almost felt like if I talked about it all the time, it would be a bit dull or boring. And it's kind of the same thing again and it's oh Jess is talking about her heart again or this or you know but obviously I know that my friends love me and would always listen but it also didn't really come up in conversation that often.
0: No.
1: Do you think that you know your friends and your peers avoided talking about it because you were avoiding talking about it or do you think it was it was something that they they didn't cons- sort of they knew you as more than that and so it was just something that didn't cross their mind
2: um a bit of all of that I think I mean with me not talking about it obviously no one's gonna necessarily bring it up if they maybe don't understand everything about the condition or how I'm feeling you know if someone doesn't know how you're feeling then it's very difficult to just sort of go on you know, tell me about your back pain today or something. You're not just going to drop that in. Um But I also feel that I, I have quite a kind of strong sort of approach to everything. So I, I don't necessarily feel like I act like I'm sort of less able or any of that. So I think my friends can genuinely forget as well, because yeah. it, it's not something that's, completely obvious i mean yes i'm tall yes i have long skinny fingers and all of this but i'm just jess as well at the end of the day and um i think they just sort of don't want to bring it up because it's not it doesn't make me who i am even though it is a huge part of me
1: i suppose do you wish that people did bring it up more do you wish that it was talked about more openly
2: i don't know really uh i mean i I do talk about things quite often with my partner and he has quite a good understanding of it all because um, we've been together 12 years so he kind of knows a lot of the ins and outs. Um, with my friends, I mean I've had friends that I'm still very close to for like half of my life now, like a good 16-17 years I've known certain best friends and they've seen me through all sorts of scary health issues and hospital stays and all sorts so um yeah i mean for them to have a bit more of a knowledge of Marfan syndrome i suppose would be interesting but
0: i don't know really it's
2: it's hard to think about that
0: you say in your um pre-record form that we send out to all our guests before we actually sit down and have an interview that you don't necessarily call yourself disabled is that right
2: yes yeah um yeah i mean i I wouldn't i mean i wouldn't necessarily say the way marfan syndrome affects me and has affected my life it didn't feel like a disability although i was less abled i feel like i mean it's not something that would qualify for what's the word pip but yeah no so I, I don't qualify for that um although there was a time when I think we we looked into it and we tried but like I said Marfan syndrome affects people in so many, many different, different ways. levels yeah there are people with Marfan syndrome that do get pip, and um rightly so because they can't stand up for how, however long or work a job or anything and I'm quite lucky in that respect so mm. and I'm quite active so I feel like disability that doesn't quite fit me if that makes sense.
1: Yeah I think that sort of ties in it's interesting to hear you sort of talk about it because you know you you're sort of saying perhaps that a people that you know and who sort of love and care about you are not necessarily as aware as you might like them to be of your health condition do you think that is partly in response to the fact that you don't you don't identify as disabled and so you almost don't feel as though your experience of that health condition is such that you know you you should be if if you're not identifying as disabled you sort of essentially there's not really a grey area so you're identifying as not disabled so do you think that accounts for part of the reason why you know your some of your friends and loved ones don't necessarily always consider the difficulties that you have?
2: Potentially um I mean my my mum in particular would say that I don't have a disability Mm. um even though she probably knows more than anyone kind of the struggles and what I've been through and how it's affected my life and impacted everything I do. I don't know. I just I just think like the whole sort of pigeonhole and categories and, you know, terms of disability and things, I just, I suppose for me, I always think there's somebody worse off so for me to call myself completely disabled and whereas I don't obviously qualify for PIP and I don't have a blue badge or anything I can't park in the disabled car parking spaces and things like that so I don't know I would I definitely am it's really hard to explain I am definitely less abled and there are things that I cannot do that other people do Mm. and it affects all sorts of things like sports and hobbies and just even kind of walking like I'm quite slow at walking walking up hills and things like my friends can all be off miles ahead and I'm kind of like bringing up the rear and things like that but I think I have limitations and that's probably the extent of it I don't know
0: I i'm disabled so i'm in a wheelchair but you can see that i'm disabled i can't walk talk can't stand on my feet without falling on the floor if i was to let go of the thing i was holding on to i'd end up on the floor however i even though i am quite clearly disabled i often use the term i have barriers just like everybody else i think that is is a good way of covering it especially if i'm if i'm bringing it up in the first instance like because a lot of people hear the d word and they go like oh no i don't know what to do um so i will often say i'm just like you i'm sat down and i have the odd barrier you know it doesn't stop me from doing anything um and i'm a passionate believer in that and yes i have barriers and some of those barriers to a non-disabled people may look like huge ones but to me because i've never known any different they're just like I'd just do them every day without even thinking about them. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. if, if somebody, if an able-bodied person was to watch shadow me all day, they'd think, oh, my God, the effort. Do you know what I mean? Whereas to me, it's like I've got to get in the shower. And, yes, it takes me 20 minutes longer than everybody else. I mean, you know, I can get in the shower and out of the shower again. Um, and I have things to to help me do that. But so, I, you know, I can do it. I've just got extra barriers to consider when I do everything so it slows me down that's that's what I always say in the first
1: instance I think what it's what's interesting about this conversation is that it's sort of highlighting that there are these different perceptions of words like disability amongst sort of for, for different people so you know Jess your association with disability is obviously strongly linked to a very kind of medical model of it of you have to have certain qualifiers you uh you know if you're dis- disabled you can't do x y or z and you are entitled to a b and c whereas i think you know lucy's approach to it is more of a it's part of her combined identity
0: and the social model of disability the fact yeah. that it's the world around me that's disabling that not the fact that i am disabled
1: I, and I think, I mean, my my personal approach is somewhere in between medical and social, I think. But I think, you know, it's interesting that, you know, Jess, you've said that Marfan's affects people in a lot of different ways. Well, cerebral palsy affects people in a huge variety of ways. There are people with CP who can, you know, mobilise independently on their own feet and things like that, but also have problems with pain and all sorts of things. So it is you know, a lot of disabilities are about that kind of spectrum. And I suppose it's just very interesting to sort of interrogate that, that difference between how you each interpret that word, because ultimately, you know, that's the whole point of what we're sort of trying to explore here is what these labels mean. And I think that it's interesting for somebody like, Lucy, who has a very visible disability to be more accepting and welcoming of the disabled label than somebody like you, Jess, who perhaps has to work harder to say, actually, I can't do this. Actually, I need help. Whereas when people see Lucy, they're probably more likely to offer help because her disability is just that much more visual. Yeah. Mm. Would you class
2: your
0: your sort of impairment as as an invisible disability, Jess?
2: Yes and no. I mean, there are are obviously huge parts of it that are invisible. Mm. There are parts of it that are very visible, um, with the kind of the way my body looks and things. Yeah. Like I suppose the, the biggest part is if you were to look at me like what Alice was saying, you wouldn't necessarily think there was anything wrong. Is wrong the right word? Wrong is probably not the right word, but there yeah. isn't anything unusual or yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I haven't really thought about it in terms of what someone would think looking at me because I'm quite, I, I don't really care. Like I'm yeah. quite sort of, not a lot tends to get me down. And if someone wants to think that I'm tall and lanky and four eyes and all these horrible words I've heard um that's fine and I can just kind of brush that off and I don't know if that's part of my upbringing or
0: um I was gonna say is that is that you know growing up and look looking you know being quite tall and and being quite visibly different is and obviously I don't know did you have to cope with people staring and and if you did how did you did you work on some sort of coping mechanism with that is there a, is there a, or do you just develop this really thick skin and think yes they're st- I know they're staring at me but I'll give them something to stare at kind of you know do you yeah, open, I mean, rather than sort of go oh they're staring at me what on earth are we going to do you know
2: um yeah I mean I, I try to say that I, I own it but um I mean in literally from primary school upwards I was always the tallest in class so if you'd have like a class photo I was always the one bang in the middle right at the back
0: yeah like I was yeah.
2: like the tallest point always
0: <laughs> draw your line.
2: <laughs> yeah and it was usually just boys near me and then all the girls were like down the front somewhere um yeah so I was always the tallest I was always kind of picked first for like basketball games and netball and that sort of stuff where they kind of think um you know she can reach the hoop without even <laughs> jumping uh, when i was allowed to play that was yeah. um but yeah i mean people look people particularly like things the the height and the hands and the glasses i'd say are the thing with well, fingers more than hands but the things i get noticed about the most would be my height and my eyes and my glasses, so I would notice people um, kind of staring, and I just kind of—I don't know if it's uh, the confidence that my mum put in me growing up, or my grandparents, because I always remember my granny saying to me when I was younger, "Oh, you know, you're you're tall and slim, you're beautiful, you'll you'll be a model one day, like you're you're perfect," and all of these like lovely things, um, which I was, I was like, "No, don't be silly." And then I think it was about like kind of high school time, like definitely year seven onwards. It was more it wasn't that people were noticing me that affected me. It was that like there was definitely bullying. I was bullied quite badly in school. Um, Luckily, never kind of violently or anything like physical abusive or anything like that. It was just name calling and words and you know I've already mentioned a couple of them um like lanky and four eyes and that kind of those horrible that could
1: be the stuff that sticks with you the longest though the kind of the the mental and emotional bullying psychological is the word I'm looking for psychological bullying
2: yeah definitely and those those were more the things that I felt like I needed to build some sort of coping mechanism for as you say so Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know my mum actually I, I know I've mentioned my mum a lot <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but I mentioned to her quite recently that I was bullied quite badly in school uh, and she was very surprised because I was always she she said to me I was always very happy and cheerful and friendly and I didn't show it so
0: so did you make it a conscious decision like not to tell parents that you were being picked on or
1: bullied or or do you think you just left it at school do you think it was something that you were able to compartmentalize and go well this is this is a school thing and actually at home I'm I'm welcomed and cared for yeah
2: yeah I think definitely like I just tried to forget about it didn't mention it it wasn't it wasn't on such a bad scale that I ever had horrible thoughts about anything um but no, I mean, I just, I don't know if I was just very thick-skinned or I just had a really great, good group of friends around that would take my mind off it. And then I think the more I didn't react to any kind of name-calling or bullying, they did start to back off and they'd you know they find a new target mm. and um, things like that. But then I also realised that I developed quite a um, good sense of humour. I feel like I... Yeah was always the funny one in the group like i'm quite sort of out there and a bit silly and you know i was also a bit larger when i was younger so i was the kind of funny fat friend that's right. kind of
1: yeah you you do hear a lot as well with a lot of comedians and things like that i've been doing some work on a comedian for a show that we're doing later um that you know a lot of comedians say well i was bullied and so i started making them laugh so that you know, they'd laugh
0: instead of yeah hurt me. And I do think that disabled people in general. Well, I, I know this is a general sweeping statement, but a lot of people that I know who are disabled, they're extremely resilient, and they do develop this sort of personality. I mean, my best friend will say, "I know when you're nervous because it's like jug, 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 jug every five minutes, <laughs> and as soon as you calm down." it sort of goes away because it's almost like I can't let them see that I'm not the I'm not a funny fun person to be around I need to joke 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 all the time and then as soon as I calm down and I realize that they're all right everybody's all right with the fact that Lucy's on four wheels I calm down and they start to see me for me and my friend my friends like stop with the jokes Just stop. I am exactly
1: like that me and my husband have had definitely had arguments like after we've left parties where he's gone I know that that was hard for you when you were really anxious but you cannot make jokes at my expense like that because and that's what I do it's not jokes at my expense it's always jokes at other people's expense and it's I'm an absolute shit for it and I know what I'm I know that I'm doing it and I need to not do it but it is it it's my defense mechanism in a lot of ways to help me manage that anxiety
0: I always think it's because, like, if I get the joke in first, then they can't hurt mm. me. I yeah. definitely think that that is a, a thing. Like, if I make a joke at first, they know that A, I'm all right with it, and B, they can't do it because I've already said it. Do you know what I mean? I'm very self deprecating mm. a lot of the time, and I don't even realize I'm doing it these days. And mm. my my friends will go, Will you just stop that? Stop it. And I'm like, What? And they it's only when somebody points it out, I go, oh, yeah, actually, that was a bit, like, I was really hard on myself there. But I think that's over the years, especially when I went to a mainstream setting for my education. So I went to college and it was a mainstream setting. I thought if I do the funny stuff, then I'm, I've protected myself. That's like, that, you know, putting that heavy coat round me and nothing can hurt hurt because I've already said it. So, um, so I do I do think that disabled people and people with health conditions or have experienced difference growing up, they do develop this thick skin where you go, all right, I'll make the joke first. It's all right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'd say I'm very, very similar in that respect. And even something as small as, I mean, if I talk in a group of people, like in people that i know really well mm. i can still um, go really red in the face and i don't know what why i do it, it could be people that i've known for years it could be people that i see every day like work colleagues i'm not a particularly shy person but when there's a lot of focus on myself i go really red so and there's times when i can feel it coming i can feel like the warmth and i know it's not necessarily anything to do with my condition or anything but that's a perfect example of me going okay um i'm gonna go bright red now everyone just ignore it because yeah. i can't help it i'm yeah. not that particularly embarrassed there's just something about my cheeks go really warm and mm. they've just always done it and then it goes away so i just sort of go just ignore the redness i'm just being stupid
0: <laughs> it's not me it's not me it's like, a, it's like yeah. a second i i i to help with my anxiety i always call my that, that I know is caused by my cerebral palsy that I get. Because I get the thing that if I go into a room full of people that I always think that they're going to think, oh, bless the poor for the day out. And I just think they're going to just, and I know it's in my head. I know that all the time it's me that's done that, not that. They're probably not thinking, oh, bless, but it's me. I'm thinking they're going to be thinking, oh, look, we're brought her out for the day. So I work myself up into a tiz feel horrendous the whole like week before on the day of the actual like if i'm going to a meeting i feel horrendous and then i get this voice in my head saying well you're useless anyway they're just going to think you're ridiculous they're just um so i'm talking myself into it so i call that voice in my head cyril my cerebral palsy
2: Ah, oh, i like
0: it <laughs> and once i've identified that that's cyril kicking off hmm. it, it's sort of like takes a bit of away a bit of the the nastiness because i know it's not me that's not my voice that's not me thinking that that's my that's a byproduct of my condition that's causing me to hate myself because i know i'm quite good at what i do i know i'm a good communicator but my brain will tell me that everybody hates me and i'm terrible at what i do and i should just stay at home and not bother and i know that that's my cerebral palsy
1: The thing that I always think when I find myself in situations like that, and I I do the same, I get very in my own head about stuff, is Mm -hmm. that you just have to remember, like you can never underestimate everybody else's ability to not give a shit about you and be only thinking about themselves as well. So when you're standing in that room going... Oh, fuck. They're all looking at me. They're all thinking that... they're standing there going, Oh, shit. I hope nobody's noticed that I've got my pants on backwards, you know? Or and the
0: collarbone done or something. Yeah, or... exactly.
1: Everybody yeah. else is, Oh, I should have brushed my hair again, or I didn't like nobody's looking at you and going, Oh, what's her deal? Because they're all as anxious and fucking self obsessed as we are. <laughs> it's just that we've got an extra thing to be anxious and self
0: obsessed about. Yeah. yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? And then and then when I calm down and everything's all right, I think, well, that was bloody stupid. Well, what I was being such an idiot that I allowed myself, and because I know it happens every time, I know it happens every time, and you know, people, you know, I'll text people in the morning, and I go, I know exactly what this is. This is this is you working yourself up, and it's you listening to that inside voice. Sometimes I say, like, the cerebral palsy voice is, on most days, he's quiet and sits in a corner, and he's quite quiet and polite. And other days, he's, like, right up in my face, screaming at me, saying, you're useless, you are. And the, the more I let myself listen to that, that constant tape of, you're terrible, you're a terrible person, you're terrible, you're terrible, you're terrible, and also, you're you can't walk so you're useless. Everybody's going to think you're an idiot. The more I listen to that, then of course you're going to believe it. Do you know what I mean? So you just have to kind of like not let yourself think, oh my God, I am really terrible. I mean, there are days where I have have been a complete bitch. I'm not going to lie. There are days where I am a cow and I know, but I know and I know I'm a cow and I will apologise. Um, so I'm not going to say I'm whiter than white and I'm perfect. I'm very irritating but I know I am not those things that I let my brain my well my brain would let me believe
1: and I think it's interesting as well because it kind of comes back to what we were talking about the the different ways that people interpret words like disabilities because it's that can't it's the oh. if people who are associating disability and difference and health conditions with a can't you can't walk you' so you're bad, you can't see so you're bad or whatever it is Mm. you know you can't do something and so if it's not they might not be you can't so you're bad it might be you can't so I feel sorry for you so Mm. I'm sad for you and and I think that that's what's really interesting I think about disability activism at the minute is that there are a lot of people really trying to re-embrace words like disabled to kind of go well actually dis- disability isn 't about me not being able to do something it 's about barriers that have been put in place in front of me, and the dis my disability is just the thing that has you know as 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 you said lucy it's it 's the world that disables you
0: mm. I think as well, the other reason why they 're so scared of disability is the fact that disability can happen to anybody at any time and so that in itself is quite a scary prospect to think about and i think maybe that coupled with the fact that i wouldn't want anybody feeling sorry for me you know i wouldn't want to be i wouldn't want to have those struggles that that lucy or alice or jessica faces i think it's a bit of fear as well that it could possibly happen um a lot of people are are so not socially aware i think Mm. um And that misunderstanding and misinterpretation of what disabled people say, especially with the online activism. So, we will raise an issue specifically on Twitter or something, or we'll have a conversation. And you will always get one individual who just doesn't understand and will twist what we say. Like, oh, like they'll say, oh, we'll calm down. Oh, we'll calm down. And you think, this is like the tip of the iceberg (laughs) Mm -hmm. this is the one thing that i am most calm about this is the tip of the iceberg and i think that that so there is that element of fear it's fear misunderstanding and just not misinterpretation i think that's what it is is the 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 seed of it and then there's lots of different offshoots that it's a big thing that and i don't understand why it is so scary i don't understand why people don't embrace difference As in a disability difference, it it just I think people don't embrace difference across the
1: board. You ask people who have, you know, gender differences and and ethnic differences and things like that across the board. People are afraid to ask those questions. I mean, there's an element of the people have people feel a need to ask questions and to understand difference, and I can grasp that in some respects when it's about making sure that you're able to accommodate a person's needs but in a lot of ways actually difference has bollock all to do with your daily interactions with a person exactly
2: Mm. I think as well people don't necessarily know the right thing to say and to not look stupid they just won't say anything
0: yeah Mm. which then leads to being sort of the silence and not saying anything just leads to more confusion because they don't yeah. want to ask the question. I always say that there is no stupid question because I've heard them all. So I, I spend, you know, when I, when I'm on Twitter, I am very open and I'm very honest about the struggles I have. Cause I think if I can be that one person that, that, that somebody sees on social media, that is being quite honest and open and saying, ask me a question. It won't offend me because I've heard all of the questions. Um, and if I don't want to answer a certain question, I won't answer it. You know, I just pick through the ones I want to answer. It doesn't mean to say that I am completely available to everybody all of the time. But I do think, I think it helps. I think it helps me, really, because I feel like I am helping the bigger picture by being that open and honest person and not being defensive when I know that people ask a question and it may not come out quite right. They may not have worded it quite right. I know that there is no malice behind that question. They are just curious and they would rather know, but they don't quite know the language to to, to use. So I will then answer their question and say, Well, maybe don't say, maybe don't broach if it was somebody else, don't broach the subject by saying like, What's wrong with you then? You told an interesting story about your
1: when you wrote to um oh what's T- her name dame T- tanny Gray yeah.
0: Thompson. yeah
1: yeah um you know might be worth retelling that story because i think that's an interesting one
0: yeah so i when i was about forty, thirteen 13 or 14 I, I wrote a questionnaire and sent it off to tanny gray thompson for a for the school newspaper i think it was a school newspaper because i think you said at the time she was basically
1: the only other disabled person that yeah.
0: you knew in the world. It, it, it was <laughs> that and Stephen Hawking, and I didn't stand a cat in Elspeth, <laughs> Stephen Hawking Um, and she was she was growing up, she was the like poster girl of people with disabilities. So I wrote to her and I basically said, Could you please fill this this questionnaire out um for our school paper? Not thinking that I would ever get a reply. And she did, she wrote back, she sent it back, and I'd written a question. And I can't exactly remember the word of it now, wording of it now. But I'd used the term wheelchair bound because I didn't know any different. I'd always, you know, we'd used wheelchair bound, and I'd never, I'd never taken offence at it because I'd just heard somebody say it and gone, oh yeah, well that's what must be what they call us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um so I wrote wheelchair bound, and she crossed it out and put um, wheelchair user. So I can thank Tani Gray Thompson for the beginning of my uh, disability education around language. Because... <laughs> but I think, I think that says a lot that,
1: you know, a wheelchair user who was 13 or 14, who had always gone to schools full of other children with disabilities and support needs, was actually found herself in that position of using a word that a, a lot of other disabled people would go well actually i'm not all right with this word Mm. so you know that fear as much as i understand that fear coming from the non-disabled community it's it's amongst everybody you know we all put our foot in our mouth sometimes
0: me especially i'm always doing it (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's quite it's not it's not an exclusive it's not an exclusive thing that just able-bodied people do, disabled people do it all the time. Um, and it is a question of just asking that question, like, what is it I call you? Is not an offensive, you know, what would you like to be called? We put that on our, our pre-recording forms, don't we? What is it you would like to be referred as? It's just a polite question. And it might sound direct and, and you know, centuries ago asking what would you like to be called would have been probably considered rude and I think it's just breaking that barrier down and saying look what is it what is it I call you
1: well and it's really interesting you look across the forms that we've got back and the responses that we've got have come really across the board you know we've had some people you know for example it's what what do we call you and it's people named jessica has said jess whereas there have been some people who've said what what do we call you and they've said i have cerebral palsy so you can describe me as a wheelchair user or something like that it's really interesting how people use you know it's open to different interpretations to different people because and i think that says a lot about that person's sort of understanding and approach to that question is what what do i call myself in a lot of ways, it didn't
2: even really cross my mind that you wanted to know anything other than like what names. Obviously, people have like nicknames and things, so yeah. I just mm. assumed Jess, mm. Jessica, that's fine. But now you've kind of mentioned it, I know um, with Marfan syndrome that quite a lot of people identify as Marfs. Marf. Okay. Um, which I think is quite, I'm quite happy to identify as a math, and I have, you know, you, you say kind of like math power, and you say, mm-hmm. I do, whenever I do anything on social media with it, I do kind of identify as that, but then there is a huge um, community of marfan syndrome um, people that they hate the word math. they think it belittles the condition, and it singles them out as different, and everything, so I think it really just depends on kind of your, like you were saying, like your view of, um, you know, who you are and what you identify as. And
1: I think a lot of that's influenced by your experiences as well. I think mm-hmm. if, you've, if you've had a lot of negative experiences with your health condition, i.e. you've been in and out of hospital, you perhaps haven't had all your needs met, you've been very poorly, then... I can understand that you might be like well actually going around saying oh I'm just a math is not not representative of actually some of the trials that you have to go through I think it's very interesting because I know that you know you have had to go through some big medical sort of experiences that you are happy to identify yourself with that sort of I don't want to say flippant you're you're happy to identify yourself with a casual term like that yeah
2: I think now definitely more than ever really like definitely more than I used to I've done a lot more kind of research into it because I had like a basic knowledge of Marfan syndrome growing up like I wanted to kind of know why I was a bit different and my mum would obviously tell me certain things and there was a huge amount of um medical jargon and stuff that I didn't understand at my appointment. So my mum would then obviously kind of spoon feed it to me a bit and explain what things meant and what was happening.
1: Um, I and mean, this was all before the internet when you couldn't just Google yeah. stuff. You were reliant on, you know, reading. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, like having the the surgeries that I had and with them being so kind of out of the blue for me, I mean, they were and they weren't. I was always told that aortic surgery was possibly on the cards for me, um, having the diagnosis of Marfan's, but they also said it would happen in the teenage years. And I managed to get to kind of uni and nothing had happened. There was no kind of issues other than like needing strong prescription glasses and painkillers now and again, stuff like that. I I lived a relatively normal life, quote unquote, normal. But yeah, um, yeah. so um, it could have been a lot worse. And then it happened. um, It happened to be November uh, 2013. I went for my annual um, ECG heart scan at Glenfield Hospital. And uh, I've been going there since I was a baby, pretty much. Um, And they're brilliant. They see me every year. And it just—it was nothing really out of the normal. Um, Although I had been experiencing like slight chest pains. um, And uh, I'm not telling the story very well. We should really start at the beginning. So (laughs) a couple of weeks prior to this, I'd been sat at home. And I was felt absolutely fine. And all of a sudden, everything got really tight around my um, sort of chest, lungs, heart area, that whole bit here. Um, and I freaked out. I didn't know what was happening. And I've always had palpitations. I've always been told that they're nothing to worry about. But obviously, if they happen regularly, um, to, you know, call 111. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I hadn't really had any palpitations or anything. It literally just felt like something had tightened around my windpipe, although I could still breathe okay. But everything just felt really close inside. That's how i describe bit it.
0: bit like, comfort.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of like squeezing a balloon, I suppose, is how I'd describe it, or like stretching it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but basically we rang a, an ambulance. They decided to send out an ambulance to me. And they checked me over and at the time i wasn't as kind of educated and i didn't really basically i didn't say i have marfan syndrome it affects my heart and my aorta so i think i should go to hospital mm-hmm. and get yeah. right. a scan yeah. because what we were worried about was i was having an aortic dissection mm-hmm. which is a huge part of marfan syndrome that's like the biggest um, worry, basically. Okay. Uh, I didn't mention any of that. They just said, well, we can't really find anything wrong with you. Your blood pressure is fine. Your airways, your breathing. Um, but if you do want to go to A&E, obviously go, but we can't take you kind of thing. Um, so me and my partner trundled off to A&E. They couldn't find what was wrong. They didn't do any scans or anything at the time. And I really cross at myself and I know my mum's definitely cross at me I didn't really get the kind of warning lights of I have Marfan syndrome I have a heart condition this can like rupture this can tear blah 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 I need an ECG so nothing of that was said and I don't blame myself for it but I really wish I'd known more than I do now and I'd have just put two and two together because it didn't feel like my heart it wasn't like a heart issue no. in my brain
1: yeah it didn't feel so like you that. you think you think that happened because of a kind of a lack of your understanding it wasn't yeah. a sort of a denial thing if you go I don't want a, this to be oh. my heart I'm not going to bring it up
2: no because if I'd have actually said like I have this condition please can I have a scan it would have got caught much sooner but I it, I just didn't connect the dots mm-hmm. um, and the person I did see was in the ear nose and throat department and they continued to want to put a camera up and down like mm-hmm. up my nose and down and i they tried to do it a couple of times and I freaked out and I was like look I can't I, you can't you can't do this basically and they said what they, what they thought it was and without being able to put the camera down was just um, swollen glands. And I just had something wrong with my glands or neck or something. So just go home. Yeah, mm. just go home. And if it persists, come back. So
1: did you did... tell your mum about this at the time?
2: No, but that
1: was because
2: I... I Previous to this, like, throughout kind of teenage years, I would wake up in the middle of the night with heart palpitations, and they'd they'd last for about a few minutes, and then they'd die down, they'd they'd go away, Mm -hmm. and then I'd fall asleep, and I'd mention it, and she'd say, oh, um, well, you know, if if they happen regularly, then we'll take you for an appointment. But things like that will happen, like, I have um, an unusual heartbeat anyway um a bit of is it arrhythmia, so yeah. I have like a extra beat every now and again anyway um so I just kind of got used to things being a bit strange inside that yeah no,
1: I, I understand I get flashing lights so, and sometimes they're really bad and mm. sometimes it's not really anything um but if I you know mother half has asked me about it before and I, if I told you every time. I saw flashing lights. I'd be every four or five minutes going, "Oh, they're back," and they're yeah. gone, and they're yeah. back, and they're gone. You know, in it, yeah.
2: I was just going to say very similar to that. Like it, it was more regular for me to have something irregular happening than not. So I didn't tell her, and I had work the next day, and I went to work, and I feel like. I'd just started a new job as well at the time. It was a dream job that I'd wanted for a long time, and it was quite a physical job, which anyone with any understanding of Marfan syndrome, that's not really something that we can do. <laughs> it's not really in our wheelhouse of uh, difficult things to do. I mean office and admin and those are the kind of things that are in the books of Marfan syndrome these are the kind of employment opportunities you should like outsource and things like that and look for this kind of
1: sustained physical work is not yeah it's not Not... yeah
2: so in a book um, I got quite recently it basically said don't try and be an olympia olympic athlete don't try and be a builder don't anything who lifts works with heavy machinery, anything like that.
0: Bit of a popper pooper, Um, really, isn't it? Yeah.
2: So, and it wasn't anything like that. It was just, I was a photographer for a family portrait studio. But the gear gear is heavy and it's a lot of jumping around with children and being entertaining and all of that stuff. But I was absolutely brilliant at it for like a month. And then this happened to, like, my chest. And then I think I tried to do something... it just felt wrong so I basically had some time off work Mm. I'd I'd phoned the hospital and said something's not right can I be seen a bit sooner than my appointment in November everything feels a bit tight and I don't know if they're just used to you know the, the boy who cried wolf or anything and they're just used to people being like something's wrong and then everything's absolutely fine but they said like the soonest appointment we could get for you is only a couple of days before your appointment anyway like they were very busy yeah um for my typical scans and stuff so I just went along with it I was just too polite and I just what I really should have done at the time is said no something's wrong I need to come in for an emergency scan something needs to be done because Mm -hmm. I'm worried but I was just that kind of okay then they don't seem to be too worried about it so it's fine yeah and at this point my mum went to my appointments with me just because she likes taking all the information and she's got quite a good head for that and then I just kind of sit there and like answer any questions um and that was kind of how my whole knowledge of my condition and stuff was my whole life like my mum was the one that spoke and Agree, like understood everything, and I was just kind of, yeah, felt all right, or you know, whatever they asked me.
1: I think that's partly a problem with kind of with the with the medical approach. You know, mm-hmm. what what would have been far better would have been if you'd had somebody who could, you know, from a young age, involve you in those appointments and help you understand from a young age. Because as much as you know, particularly when you're a child, it's important for your mum to know and be involved but ultimately it's your body you know in your life it should be you who you know you're the person who knows your body best it should be Mm -hmm. you who understands your condition
2: and I think that's more my fault in part because my mum has kind of been amazing my whole life I mean she's been a single parent since I was two so she's kind of took on everything but um she was never really pushy and she'd never like tell me to stop talking in the appointments it's just <laughs> I think I chose to be a bit absent from it all or just not necessarily to avoid anything or hide anything but I just I just assumed I was fine so mum will handle it. I think as well when you are
0: a kid and you have to go to those big appointments so they are very scary whether you've got your parents with you or not they are extremely scary
1: well and I also think that when you live in it every day it's kind of a bit disinteresting after yes. a while you're like oh, oh yeah. I've done this really yeah completely yeah. yeah.
2: so yeah I I stuck to my original appointment because I didn't want to make a fuss And the day before that appointment, I thought it would be a brilliant idea to go to Walton Towers.
0: Oh, no. With a group
2: of friends. Because as far as I was concerned, nothing was really wrong. I thought maybe it's like a viral kind of chest infection or a cold. I didn't know what was happening. and It didn't feel that painful. So I just thought, go to Walton Towers. Enjoy the scare fest. So it wasn't even just normal. Yeah. It was like, it was people jumping out at you and doing all, like, couldn't have been worse. I'm not proud of this. And I do not condone
0: <laughs> people with my heart syndrome to go on. We must insert a disclaimer here. Please do not yeah. try this at home. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> if you have a heart condition and you're experiencing chest pains, perhaps don't go to a theme park where people are going to try and terrify you. (laughs) Yes,
2: (laughs) just avoid it at all costs. I mean, somehow, luckily I was fine and spent the whole day and there's a lot of walking and excitement and anything. But yeah, and then went to the appointment at the hospital the next day um, my met my mum there, and uh, the ward is upstairs, like the where it is. So it's like up two flights of stairs, and I re- physically remember walking the first flight of stairs, and my mum looking at me, and she could see my pulse coming out of my neck, oh, like, Jesus. like quite quite bad. I mean, that is
0: really, really serious. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and she sort of said like, "How long is?" This has
0: been happening, and I was like, um, nearly three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that and, is really uh, the ultimate mom telling off, that is. Isn't I it? Know. <laughs> <laughs> and, How can we tell
1: you if you've had a cold for more than two weeks that you should be yeah. worried. So, if your heart's been beating out your fucking neck for three weeks, yeah. <laughs> you're beating out
0: of your neck.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. And um,
2: <laughs> we went. We went in they saw me and all i can remember is because it's um it's the ecg and it's the echo um as well so they do and i've had this since i was a baby every year so i'm absolute pro at it mm-hmm. it's like the little sticky wires on yeah. you and they do the read out of your heart and then they do the one with the uh the jelly and the ultrasound mm-hmm. so they do that and I just remember the woman who's normally really chatty, who does my ultrasound, being really quiet and <laughs> I didn't know why. And I just thought, oh, maybe she's having a bad day. And she, she walked out of the room. I got dressed, got all the jelly off me and everything. And then I remember then we went in to see uh, the specialist, my, the doctor, the Cardi, cardiac specialist, and it was a new guy. It was a new man because my original guy had left or something and he, it was literally his first day which i found out later and he basically told me that i had to stay in because my aorta had torn oh. which is something that is um obviously very Marfanzy, fancy <laughs> uh because the aortic root with the amount of pressure and everything, it can dilate, and if it dilates to a certain amount, it will tear. And that's what I've been on medication for.
0: You, you yeah. went told towers. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <Coming>. Morning, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't
2: know. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's it is a joke every time. Luckily, it can be a joke because I am still here. But. <laughs> Every time we even mention it or go to a hospital checkup for things now, because they still obviously happen, it is like, oh, and you know, she went to Walton Towers the day before, and I'm sat there like,
0: sorry, you never get to live that bad. <laughs> I mean, sod bear grills, to be fair. I mean, that is like...
2: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just remember his, his name was Dr. McDonald, and he was very scottish and i just remember in his (laughs) shout out
1: dr mcdonald
2: i just remember him saying yeah you can't go christmas shopping with your mum you need to stay here because your aorta has torn we need to get you in for emergency surgery
0: i mean what a first day yeah you're not gonna forget that in a long time are you really to be fair
1: Yeah, he's probably at dinner parties going,
0: and then there was this fucking lash. She's been to Alton Towers. <laughs> he's been dining out on that story for yeah. years. And then yeah. I saved her life.
2: Yeah, and I just remember one of the lovely cardiac liaisons coming out with a wheelchair and him saying, come on, and he was so lovely. And he just said, come on then. Let's get you in this chair and get you down to where they prep you. Yeah. And they obviously put all the stuff in you. And I just, it didn't seem real. Like we were, we were going down corridors and things and it just, I didn't feel like anything was happening. No. I remember sitting, sitting on the bed, getting like the pre-op kind of stuff happening to me. And my mum said, where's Rob? Like Rob's my partner. And I said, he's at work. And she's like, I'm going to ring him because he probably needs to be here and at the time he worked in retail so unbeknownst to me she'd rang him he'd got in a taxi got to the hospital he came in he had a little bit of time with me before i was taken off to surgery and i'm trying to remember because there's been a few surgeries i think this one was the one that was 13 hours long home
0: holy i mean
2: think it was definitely over 10 hours
0: you think that because it happened so quickly it was quite a good thing because it gave you it didn't give you any chance to dwell on anything
2: yeah I mean it didn't give me a chance to kind of run away um (laughs) yeah I mean I was stuck there and it was happening it was it was terrifying though because of course like I didn't know what to expect I didn't know if I'd make make it or anything like that but then oh that was just like that was the beginning like it was it was that surgery and because it was such an emergency surgery and they weren't necessarily prepared for it
0: they did something that would fix fix it for a bit right so it was, it was, a, it was a bit like getting sellotape out on the phone when the phone Pretty calls report yeah but yeah. in
2: in the shape of like i think they use pig for want of a nicer word, it's like they
1: uh, do. I've I've literally just heard read about this in a book. There is a kind of there's part of a pig and a cow that is ideal. It's a ligament that's ideal for use in um, for t- basically tying around aortas. Yeah. Yeah. So that's
0: what they did. Alice is trying to become a heart surgeon since I spoke yeah. to her this morning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, I just, I happen to be reading a non I can also tell you, uh, I have a lot of random biology facts out of my, my non-fiction book I've been reading. <laughs> did you know that giraffes are the only animals that are sometimes born with and sometimes born without a gallbladder? And they don't oh. seem to have any idea why. What are
0: well, we going to do with this information, Alice? What?
1: Might come in useful at a pub quiz sometime—a really obscure pub
0: quiz. This is this is a new feature called Alice tells us <laughs> random shit. Alice, knows. <laughs> what were we talking about? I can't even remember what we're talking about. Oh, Pete and Jessica's Peter. major heart surgery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to that. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I am getting to
2: the end. So <laughs> they they did the quick fix and then they said you're going to need more surgery um, in a couple of years, but that needs to calm down. But what I didn't know is when they'd done that surgery, they then did an MRI scan just to make sure everything was looking good and everything was where okay. it should be.
0: Yeah.
2: And they found, um, I didn't know, but they found something else wrong with me. I had an abdominal aneurysm so which is also kind of partly to do with marfans and also just a bit bad luck um but it basically described it as it looks like a water balloon like part of your abdominal aorta the bit Mm. it's kind of right at the bottom of your uh ribs a bit lower than that actually um had swollen and it was going to explode if they didn't uh do sorry if it's a bit graphic no no it's not it's shocking it's not (laughs) graphic at all within two weeks of the first surgery i was then transported in the middle of the night to a different hospital here in leicester
1: please tell me it was by helicopter
2: no, it was an ambulance. It was, it was pretty cool to go in an ambulance, I must say, that's my first time. Did, you have, time. The everything? Did you have the Nina's on? No, because ninas. it was like it was like three in the morning, so no. <laughs> 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 Which is a shame. Yeah. Um, I also remember they drove down the road that my house is on and I remember kind of looking and being like, Oh, I miss my cat. <laughs> 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 but then yeah, so I went to the second hospital, had a few days stay. They scheduled in the um, aneurysm uh, operation, which was 10 times worse than the open heart surgery. So the open heart surgery, actually, I didn't really feel anything. I wasn't in particular pain. It was probably the amount of morphine I was on. Um,
1: and like, I feel like we should make clear at this point you, when you say you didn't feel anything, you mean afterwards you weren't awake during either. No, surgery. no, no. You
0: know, thank you for clarifying that, Alice, because I actually Sorry. thought she was lying awake. Like, <laughs> no. oh fuck no, no. I mean, like open heart surgery
1: cracks your fucking rib open like they're doing an autopsy. No, oh.
0: Alice, I've got to my tea later. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But, yeah, so after they'd sawn my ribcage open yeah. uh, and then done the fir- 12, 13 hours, however long it was, and then um, they, like, pinned it back together, basically. I, I believe my ribcage is, like, part metal and it's, like, conjoined together. Um, anyway, and mm. then, yeah, so I had the... The second surgery. So within four weeks, I'd had two massive open surgeries in my kind of torso, and that second one was much worse. And then I went to stay with my mum for a while, and she was brilliant, and my friends were brilliant, and they'd come and see me and everything. But then in the back of my head, I knew that they'd said I need a second heart surgery at some point in Mm. a few years, and it. They basically said to me in like two years time we'll do you again there'll be it'll be planned it'll be better you know we'll know exactly what we're doing not that they didn't but you know there's just kind of that process involved of preparation as well and I just remember them saying to me don't do anything to um, obviously don't go to Austin Towers um, <laughs> don't, don't do anything that's gonna be too much of an exertion so my job role had to change a little bit. I mean, obviously had quite a long time off work anyway. Um, but I basically was just waiting for this next operation. And then that happened in April, 2015, which was nearly two years. And then that one was the planned one. And that was the more interesting one because that's the one that I think has properly saved my life, prolonged my life as well. Um, Because they did a procedure and I got to choose what part I got so I could still go for the kind of um, natural kind of fleshy pig heart pieces. yes, Or I could go for mechanical. Um, And they explained to me very clearly if I got a mechanical heart valve, Mm. I wouldn't be able to have children. Which is a whole other topic that we can talk about after I finish this very long story. And I decided that the mechanical heart valve was the option for me because they said the likelihood of you needing any more surgery is a lot less with this. This will basically outlive yeah. you. So. And how old were uh, you at this point? Uh, this was 2015, so I was how old am I now? Like 28. 20, i was 28 i think i'm 32 now so maths is not a strong point of mine <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah five years ago is that right yeah you were
1: about. you were you were nearly you were going to be 27
2: yes thank you <laughs> there
1: you go um
2: yeah and then I had, to, I had to sign i remember signing things so the hospital obviously didn't get in any trouble if i didn't make it um, which i didn't have time to do in the first operation so that was all
0: i mean that in itself i mean to be told that if you have this sort of mechanical heart and you can't have children is one thing and then say oh and sign this just in case anything happens yeah just in case you die we don't want your mum to sue us we're gonna kick you we're gonna kick you a bit and then kick you a bit more (laughs) just to make sure you are down and out but um, yeah thoroughly kicked that's an incredible. I mean, I don't want children, and I made a, a decision very early on that I didn't want children. And I think partly part of that decision is because I am in a wheelchair, and I would find it very difficult. I, I find it very difficult to look after myself, never, never mind another child. But to have that decision, it's a, you know, it's either this. We could, we could do it like this and you could have children or you could do yeah. it like this and not have you that is a huge huge decision to make at such an early age as well I mean it, just around the time when you may possibly be thinking about families so and... it
2: it was and it wasn't and we can come back round to that in a minute but it definitely was it was interesting having the power to choose because my mum and I, she wanted me to have the natural kind of cow bit. I'm sure there's a proper word for it. I can't remember what it is. I apologise for saying, yeah, bovine. Yeah, I apologise for saying pigs and cows. Um,
1: but I call, uh, call it what it is. <laughs> yeah, so
2: she wanted me to have that just so I had the option. Mm. But all I could think was, I don't want to go through this again. No, I, don't I possibly know. will have to anyway, but if it can be kind of, less likely I'm going to choose that option and that operation went really well and that one was I think eight hours or something but then the interesting thing about that one and we are very near the end of my operation bit um the interesting thing they I remember them um because I was hooked up to a machine that was making my heartbeat for me in the ICU and I remember them um coming in, the big team of doctors all stood around the bottom of my bed and they wanted to see if my heart would beat for itself. And I remember them turning the um, dial down off to see if my heart would kick start. And I was sat up and I remember just literally they turned it and I went, literally flopped downwards. I could feel all the life coming out of me and just literally (sighs) going down. and then
1: they're like, no, no, quick, turn it back on, turn it back on. <laughs> and they they literally turned me back
0: on, turn it back on. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> much.
1: like, like those lights on a dimmer switch. You turn it down, yeah. you turn it down, you turn- oh, and it goes no. off. And you go, oh no, turn it back on again. It was exactly <gasps> like that. And I
2: just, my mum was there for that bit, and she was just, in, she was a state. I, be, I'd be fucking hysterical. <laughs> I'd just be screaming. Turn <laughs> on and it was literally like a few seconds. It wasn't like they left me there for ages. But they they tried it a number of times to see if my heart would start. Because I was in ICU for probably a, a week. And they normally like to get you on the wards within a couple of days. Because obviously ICU beds are quite important for people that are dying yeah. um, or surviving. <laughs> and they, they came to me again and they said, your heart isn't starting by itself. So what we're going to elect to do, obviously, with your permission is install a pacemaker. So I am a 32 year old with a pacemaker and a mechanical heart valve. So I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And the, the pacemaker implementation was 10 times more painful than anything I'd had done before. It might have. Been that I was hysterical <laughs> <laughs> from like everything I'd been through. It might also be because I couldn't lie on my back because of the way they'd had to open my ribs. I was meant to be supported. Oh, yes. Sorry.
1: My. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we need to put a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, or, or just uh, like. <laughs> Like this, this episode may contain scenes that some listeners will find upsetting. That's
0: if we can record it because I've not fainted on the floor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this um, is the end of our podcast because Lucy is dead. <laughs> and then the very, the very last,
2: like gross thing is that for pacemakers, you're awake while they're doing it. Oh, so, <laughs> what does it, how do they do it? So they numb. Normally, it's done on your, your left where your heart obviously is. Yeah, they couldn't they do it on that side for me because I'd had a blood clot, a really bad intravenous blood clot in my left arm, which had made it swell like a balloon from the first surgery. And they tell me that happened because my arm was caught underneath me for some of the operation. You know, I mean, I could, there was one point in those kind of two years where I couldn't lift my arm up to like brush my hair because my left arm was so bad so they couldn't do the pacemaker on that side um so they ended up doing it on my right and all I can remember is they obviously gave me gas and air um they injected me with like a numbing something and then it just it just feels like a lot of pushing Mm. that's all I can explain but the pain wasn't from my from the actual thing going in it was from my Back. and then also he had to put more injections in me because for some reason it didn't numb properly and all I can remember is you know those blue sheets that they put on um, yeah. to do surgery and obviously they've got the bit open and that's the bit they work on and everything else has got like just a blue bit around it
0: and there's a bit off so you can't see like what's going on yeah yeah so
2: to get the bit showing on my shoulder The blue thing had to go over my face.
0: Oh no!
2: I just had like this medical, I don't know what it is, fabric just over my face, as well as a mask giving me gas and air and trying to calm me down, Um, as well as just a surgeon like pushing and putting, and it was violent, like it felt like he was punching me. And I'm sure he was doing a very good job and was brilliant, but at the time I was like, Please stop.
0: <laughs> that does actually sound like some sort of like torture technique that they use to get information out of people. Yeah. That is it horrendous. Felt like that. Yeah,
2: yeah. And um, it it's basically about the size of two two pound coins on top of each other is attached to part of me on the inside and then it's got little wires that go, and obviously well, it's a pacemaker, so I'm sure you probably know what they do, but yeah. um, the wires keep your heart going. So that's over, and then they take me up to the ward. The next day, my heart starts beating by itself. So I now have a pacemaker, for no reason whatsoever. Just an accessory, is, it's an accessory. Yeah. Mm. With a battery life of 10 years, and it works it because obviously you have to get that. I have a checkup for that every year now yeah. as well. Yeah. Um and they put something on you to make sure it's working and they can turn you on and off and stuff like that. And they worked out that within since I've had it, it's been used naught point naught one percent of the time. Whereas <laughs> normal people are like ninety percent of the time. <laughs> So, I
0: mean, yeah. So it is doing something, but just not very often.
2: I think it's mostly when I sleep, if right. if at all. Um, but yeah, and they can they can tell me when it's kicked in. There's also if I when I have to have MRI scans or CT scans, which I have every year, um, they have to turn it on for that because your heart needs to be pacing, and I'm not entirely sure why, but. That might be the 0.01% of when
1: so, it gets used. So it's used. Actually, it, you've never needed it. It's been turned on by yeah. professionals, right? Yeah. Pretty
2: much.
1: So, so you've just told us, you've just spent 20 minutes telling us about I'm all sorry. this. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, All these surgeries nice. and hugely invasive and physically and I think mentally traumatic. and life-changing and life-saving and yet and yet things that directly link to your health condition and yet you don't feel as though you have a disability i just want to kind of draw the the parallels there of going i mean your health condition disabled you so much that your your life was in danger seriously um they had to turn the
0: dial back up
1: And, you know, again, I just, not not necessarily asking you and calling on you to change the way that you feel and identify about this web, but it's something, you know, to bring people's focus to that, to say, well, actually, you know, if disability is a negative word, this is somebody who's, I mean, your story's a bit insane. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be I, honest I, I think i'm a little tiny bit traumatized if i'm honest for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. yeah
2: i mean i see like where you're coming from but to me it just feels normal that's what happens to people with marfan syndrome mm. so i've just kind of taken it on but i mean i would never be ashamed to say i have a disability never i just don't feel like i'm disabled enough to have a disability I suppose is how I'd look at it but then that's just kind of my my understanding of it I guess but no I could definitely see where you're coming from
1: I think it would be really interesting if we've got anybody out there uh, with Marfans who is listening to sort of hear what their feelings are and responses are to to those kind of labels
2: Mm. yeah I think so definitely I mean I would definitely be sharing this podcast with like uh for the on the forums and stuff and just and it's just my point of view i have to say as well like someone else could be suffering of all sorts of different things or you know marfan traits are different in so many people which i've already said um the same as you know if we're going to talk about children in a second there are people that have had children with marfan syndrome that was never a Path for me at all from a very young age, I kind of knew that I didn't shouldn't. I don't know what came first, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg. I don't know if I was told that I shouldn't have children ideally, or if I decided that I didn't want children. But from pretty much can you
1: qualify that that shouldn't? Who was who and why do you were you being told that just for our listeners Um... out there?
2: Yeah, of course. So my GP and cardiac uh, specialist at the hospital mostly. So it's well known that Marfan syndrome is a hereditary condition. Mm-hmm. It can also be, um, it can just kind of appear like an abnormal gene. Um, as like it's the a same,
1: mutation. With, same with mine. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I think mine is a mutated gene. Now, I don't have any confirmation of this, but Um, This kind of goes back to that genetic testing that we were talking about earlier. My mum got tested and she didn't have any of the traits. I mean, she's she's slightly tall for a lady, but nothing else particularly stands out with my mum that she would have Marfan. Now, I don't know my dad, which is a whole other topic. um, (laughs) But from the two pictures I've seen of him, two photographs, He's quite tall and slim, but again, I remember my mum trying to reach out to him and saying, Jess has this condition, you can get a test for it if you want to. And I'm pretty sure he said no, and he wasn't interested. And then my granddad, I I mean, potentially, but it was never diagnosed, but he was very tall. Uh, but the only reason I say my granddad is because I know it can also skip a generation. Right. So if if he did have it undiagnosed but then he did live a very long life so undiagnosed and without like medication and things obviously he's not around uh any longer unfortunately but without obviously speaking to him about it I would never know but no. I don't believe so personally so I think it was a kind of just abnormal abnormality like mutant gene. Mm. For mm. me however if Someone with Marfan syndrome was to have children, there's a 50% chance that their child would then have it as well. And it's whether it's a boy or a girl, it's exactly the same outcome 50% likely that they'd have it. Right. Obviously, you could argue that it's 50% they might not have it. And if that was the case, then maybe it potentially would be different. But for me personally, and I have done a lot of Research and reading on it growing up if I was to obviously I can't because of the operation which we spoke about earlier But if I was to have a child the strain on my heart and my aorta and everything I might not make it through the pregnancy and it's Mm. all might nots and maybes and uh, there's no there's no right answer as such but yeah, so I might not I'd struggle through the pregnancy definitely Mm. I might not make it there might be I think the books phrase it as fatal um, pregnancy uh, kind of periods and things and then giving birth there would be no chance of a quote-unquote normal pregnancy it would be a cesarean or anything like that so there are options and I'm not saying that people with Marfan syndrome don't have children and shouldn't have children obviously it's it is a huge debate on all sorts of levels but it's it's personal to the person now i decided from a very young age that i didn't want my if i had a child i didn't want them to go through what i'd been through because it's been pretty tough to be honest with everything considered and i'm also just not very maternal like i don't i don't not like children but i've just always not really been i not really been that kind of, oh, look at the
0: baby. So, um... <laughs> I think as well, if you take the whole disability health condition mm. angle out of it, motherhood isn't necessarily for every woman. And I know that society's is like, oh, you know, when are you going to have kids? And or, you know, that is a common question that yeah. near enough every woman has to answer at some point um yeah. but it's not for every woman and i don't i think as well that even if i were was able bodied probably kids wouldn't wouldn't be something i would be massively interested in however it does stop people asking me oh so when are you going to settle down and have children i don't normally get that question asked very often and i don't know whether that's because i'm disabled or whether i just give off a vibe that's like i don't want give, it, give me gin instead <laughs> Um, yeah.
1: It's it's you going down the street and pushing all of those children you see and hitting them with sticks. That's
0: <laughs> <it> <laughs> Who's told you about that? <laughs> um, but I, yeah, so it does sort of stop the, the intrusive question of so when are you having children? When have you met Mr. Wright? I don't tend to get those questions. It's never they've never played yeah. with me like other people. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's not a question that it's not something that is for every woman really.
2: No. And I I do get those questions like recently at work someone like sex so I, I talk about my partner quite often and mm. we've been together nearly 13 years and it was like oh you're getting married then or when's babies happening and things and my brother um he's older than me by three years and he's got two little ones and he's a brilliant dad and all of that stuff so I, I do get interaction with kids and I I love my niece and nephew dearly and I part of me does wish that um i could give my mum grandchildren just because there's something very different about my brother being the dad and obviously his lovely wife being the mum yeah her mum is kind of
0: the main grandma
2: yeah not more important obviously but yeah exactly the main grandma whereas if i had children my mum would have much more of like a say and yeah, that and we've had conversations about that as well and I think that's part of the reason why she wanted me to have the bovine bits yeah. <laughs> um, but because I chose the mechanical valve the reason that that decision was then taken away from me and it is simply because the mechanical valve requires me to take warfarin for the rest of my life which are blood thinners right during pregnancy you can't be on warfarin so that's the plain and simple. That's why I can't and won't have children. And obviously then there are all the other options available, like adoption or surrogacy, or which are all brilliant options as well. And I think definitely for certain people, that's perfect for them. For me, it's just not.
1: I mean, it sounds like kids were not really, like Lucy, it's, it's just not something that is particularly for you. How did, you know, that, Was that something that you discussed with your partner before making the decision about the valve? Was it, how did you find people, you know, particularly being 26, 27, that experience of saying to people, actually, I've decided, and I know that means I can't have children, but this is, you know, was that something that you found difficult, that people found difficult to understand?
2: Well, with regards to my partner, I mean... When we first got together, obviously it was early days and children wasn't really mentioned for a while. And then I did tell him about Marfan syndrome quite early and I explained everything about how it can affect children and stuff and they probably weren't for me. But then a lot of people's answers to things like that is, oh yeah, but you might grow out of it, you might change your mind when you're older and they're obviously valid opinions as well. But then I'm quite lucky with my partner because he, he also doesn't want children now part of me wonders if that's because I can't have children now or don't didn't want children and wouldn't have children maybe he's kind of not gone along with it yeah I mean he he's adamant to me that he didn't want to have children he still doesn't want to have children it's not something in his future and he gets a lot of enjoyment out of the niece and nephew and family and all of that stuff but for us to have children it's not that's not on the table at all,
1: well, and I think that it's perfectly legitimate choice to say yeah. actually, i'm happy to not have children if it means that I get to be with this person because if you yeah. if children were more important to you than being with that person, then you wouldn't have stayed with that person exactly,
2: yeah, and hopefully that's how he feels, but then i did I do remember that I don't think he was there when I was choosing what valve to have.
1: Was it uh, just put on the spot in the moment sort of thing? They said, this one or this one, decide. I think they, they did give me about an hour. But wow. But he,
2: he was at work. He visited me every day. Bless him, he was brilliant. But he was at work and my mum was with me at the time.
1: Yeah.
2: And actually, I don't think it crossed my mind to even ask him because I knew that we'd both said not children and we weren't interested and at that point we'd been together five six years so something like that (laughs) we've been together a number of years anyway and yeah it just i i feel a bit guilty now
1: (laughs) i think it's pretty poor practice on the part of the hospital you know i know they saved Mm. your life and everything but there's a you know what if you hadn't been certain and they're like you've got an hour to decide I, you really feel as though, particularly if this is this was for the second planned operation, they should have gone. Oh, just an FYI, three weeks before we we saw you open again.
0: Yeah, have a think about this. Yeah, not not an hour before I cue the countdown music and off I go and I'll see you in an hour. Yeah, but... yeah.
2: I mean, it might have been a little over an hour, but I just remember being so headstrong that as soon as they said the words you're less likely to need more well, I
0: suppose, yeah.
2: surgery. And because I was already in quite a happy place of children just aren't for me, it's, that's not something that's going to be in my future, mm. then I think that made it easier to just make that decision. But yeah, it's definitely interesting. Yeah,
1: I mean, it sounds like you're, for you, the decision was about you and actually you'd already decided about children. So that was kind of neither here nor there
0: yeah
2: i think
0: so Jess, we uh like to use our podcast as a platform for our guests so the one of the questions on your pre-recording form was if you had the opportunity to sort of um give a message to any listeners who may be listening and are learning about health conditions and disabilities what would it be so what would your message to people who are trying to understand differences a bit more and things like that what would your message be to our listeners
2: just to start conversations a bit more um and not be kind of afraid to talk about quite serious subjects because i think if anything i mean particularly looking at like the three of us for example we're quite easy to speak to and we can make kind of joke about things and it just is about um kind of There's an element of obviously getting on with things and dealing with what you're dealt and that sort of stuff. But then I just I believe that the more that people kind of understand and can kind of venture into those unknown waters of like, right, well, I'd I'd love to know more about this or what does this mean for these kind of people and how does this impact their lives and what can I do to have a better knowledge and then also not necessarily help in any way because I wouldn't necessarily say that but I just the, the main thing I would say is to just acknowledge difference and just communication and just ask all the questions you can and just yeah probably that <laughs>
0: that's brilliant I think that's that's rounded everything up yeah it's yeah that's really nice up. end nicely so uh thank you so much for joining us Jess I hope we've not traumatized or asked you too many difficult questions no not at all I think if anybody's traumatized Lucy
1: I think it's you I obviously. think you'll to
0: have a lie down with a cold drink or something <laughs> <laughs> no it's been really fascinating to to hear your story Jess so thank you so much for for joining us
1: yeah thank you yeah.
0: very much for sharing with us Jess
1: hey,
2: you're very welcome it was very enjoyable and I hope I didn't put you off
1: your dinner <laughs> or anything <laughs> is there any like social medias or anything you want to promote the any charities that mean a lot to you anything you want to kind of just stick on the end for you know go and do this go and follow this
2: yeah I mean obviously the British Heart Foundation is uh, has been a huge part of my life um and then also specifically the Marfan Trust um, they're quite a smaller charity, but they obviously specialise in people with Marfan syndrome. There's a lot of information if you headed on to uh, the Marfan Trust website, which I believe is just marfantrust.org, um, yeah, and just, Marfan's is quite unknown, so just go and have a little look and see if anything's interesting. Um, just enjoy reading about it because one of the most important things about Marfan syndrome is quite a lot of people go undiagnosed and they're just a bit tall or anything and they just don't get the diagnosis that they need about 200 people are diagnosed with it every year so
1: wow okay well we'll we'll be sure to put that out
0: on all of our social medias and stuff as yeah. well cool. Alright, well, We've got a link on our website as Phillips Scofield would say. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
1: thanks for listening to the Labelled Podcast. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at labelled podcast.
0: Our thanks go to our editor Adam Hall, our music composer Maisie Crunden, and our graphic designer Sarah Coley. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.